Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. My guest today is Mike Duran, an expert on Middle East security issues and a senior fellow in the Center for Middle East Policy here at Brookings. After the interview, stick around to hear highlights of a recent expert panel at Brookings on the Ukraine crisis and Russia's place in the international order. And now, the interview. Welcome to the program, Mike. Hi, it's good to be here. I've wanted to have you on the show for a long time, uh, but I'm glad you are now on for what is the 26th episode of this podcast, which, since it's a bi-monthly program, I'm claiming as the one-year anniversary. So welcome. Wonderful. Enough about me. Let's talk about you. You've been here at Brookings for about three and a half years, and prior to that, you were in government and in academia. Can you briefly describe where you've been? Uh, Well, uh, I started out uh, wanting to be an expert on the Middle East. I was pursuing an academic career, and then 9-11 hit, and I started writing things at more contemporary policy relevance, um, and I got sucked into the policy world. And then from there, I got an offer to work at the Bush White House. I was at Princeton at the time, and uh, uh, it just seemed too attractive to to turn down. Uh, I was trying to get tenure at the time, and uh, I faced the question of whether to keep going down the tenure-track path or or uh, jumping to the White House, and I thought offers from the White House don't come around every year. So I just I took it, and I haven't looked back since. In fact, you wrote and published an article in Foreign Affairs called Somebody Else's Civil War. It was in the January-February 2002 issue of Foreign Affairs, and, and that's been cited as, as an extremely influential piece. Were you were at Princeton when you wrote that? I was, and, and yeah, that was the article that actually sucked me into the policy world. I had no, I had no intention of ever working in Washington. I think I always kind of wanted to be on the line between academia and um, and policy questions, but more more in academia. Um, and I never really considered a, a career in Washington at all. Uh, but that uh, you know there was there was such tumult after nine eleven, and uh, I wrote that article, and then people kept asking me to speak. And then before I knew it, I was uh, I was opining on American foreign policy. How was being at a think tank different from those other roles that you have served in? A think tank. Ultimately, there's there's always the impact question. So a lot of a lot of what you do at a think tank is similar to academia, uh, research, analysis. Uh, but there's always the so what question, which is a lot heavier at the in a think tank than it is in a um, uh, in academia. And, and, and in particular, so what for the United States? What is it, what should the United States then do? And that changes the way you do uh, you do research. Also. Um, I think what may be surprising to some people, I think think tanks are a lot more um, lively and open to new ideas than uh, academia is. Academia is a profoundly conformist place. I've seen you criticize in the past the uh, Middle East Studies programs at some universities. I know you were associated with Princeton's right. Near East Studies program. Uh, oh, yeah. I, no, I, I, think, um, I think academia in general is just um, horribly conformist. But I think that Middle Eastern studies is the worst of the worst. I, I can't imagine it, uh, any discipline being worse. There may be one out there that I haven't come across. First of all, in order to get a PhD, um, you you have to write something that everybody will sign off on. So there's a there's a there's a consensus element to it. Then to get a job, uh, there's a you know when when departments go to give you a job, uh, even a non tenured job, the the administration wants to see a a majority and a vast majority of the faculty members voting for you because they don't want to have fights in, in departments. So you have to please everybody in the department. And then to get tenure, you have to, again, please almost everybody in the department and then please the larger field. 
So if you're saying something that's a little bit controversial or, or uh, rubs anybody the wrong way, um, then you're going to have a lot of problems. And so it's a funny thing because academics feel like they're very open-minded. It's the herd of independent thinkers, right? They are all incredibly open-minded and open to new ideas, but they all happen to think exactly the same thing. You've also been in, in government. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like, especially in the post-9-11 world? Oh, that was, uh, that was fascinating. For me, I thought I knew something. I was actually teaching classes at Princeton on uh, the United States and the Middle East. Um, and I'd studied the Middle East a lot. And I, I thought I knew something about America and the Middle East. And, and then I went to the White House and I realized that I knew very little. That the, the skill set of being an academic and the skill set of being a policymaker are, are really two different things. There's, there's an overlap. I mean, I think on some questions when I was in the White House, I had a lot of confidence about my own, uh, my own views and uh, uh, sort of a certain kind of intellectual confidence. But I had no uh, knowledge about how you actually got stuff done and what was possible to get done within the bureaucracy. It's the whole, the whole idea of advance, advancing an idea in a bureaucratic context and advancing one in an academic context is totally different. That's really interesting. Uh, and this next question actually comes from a listener in Marietta, Georgia. Um, he wanted to know, if you remember, what was your first kind of interview or public speech? What was that like? Well, I don't, I don't really remember the first public speech because since I was in academia, I was doing a lot. I've been doing a lot of talking for a long time. Um, I do remember the, the first interview after that article you mentioned, uh, Somebody Else's Civil War. I got uh, invited to, to go uh, on Fox News. Um, to the Tony Snow show, which was their Sunday morning program at the time. And um, I, w I would say it was not my best performance. And it was, uh, it was upsetting on a number of levels. I, I had been getting after that article. You know, there was such interest in, after 9-11 and these kinds of questions. And uh, I had been getting uh, requests for interviews from a lot of media outlets. And I mentioned to one of my supporters at Princeton uh, that uh, all these interview requests were coming in, and I was saying no to all of them. And he said, why? And I said, because I, I look at it in the, thinking about this academic question, because my, my ideas rubbed a lot of people the wrong way in uh, academia. So I was looking to make fewer enemies. And I said to him, you know, I, I look at this as an opportunity, these interview requests as an opportunity to make more enemies. So I'm just saying no. He said, no, 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 this is very good for you. Go do that. So the next one that came in was Fox. And I went and I did it. And it was bad all around. I mean, it was nice to take the limo to New York. That it felt like a big shot. And then I went on the Tony Snow show, and as I was coming into the to the the show, uh, Musharraf uh, of Pakistan uh, gave a major speech. But it, it was it was going on while I was in the limo. I knew nothing about it. And I I uh, sat down in the chair, and Tony Snow started peppering me with questions about Musharraf's speech. I must have looked like a deer in the headlights because I I didn't know what to say. <laughs> I didn't know I didn't know anything about Pakistan. Number one, uh, and uh, uh, and I had no idea what Musharraf had just said. And I, I hadn't learned the techniques, you know, you, uh, after you do more and more interviews, you learn to, like politicians always do, you talk about what, you, you have your talking points that you want to talk about. It doesn't matter what they ask you. It's not a real conversation. Uh, you, just, you just move it quickly, as, you, as quickly as you can to your, your topic. So I didn't know to do that. So I doubt that it went very well. Anyway, Tony Snow never asked me back. Uh, and then, uh, then when I got back, uh, back home, I called up my, my supporter who had told me to take these interviews. And I told him I had done an interview, and he said, "Really, with whom?" And I, and I said, "With Fox." And he said, "What? You didn't? Why? Why would you do that? That's the dumbest thing you've ever done." And uh, I thought, you know, I was taking your advice, but I, I guess I didn't get it. 
That's great. Uh, and I commend uh, the article. It's titled Somebody Else's Civil War, January, February 2002, Issue of Foreign Affairs to, to everybody to read. It was really fascinating. Uh, how did you get interested in the Middle East as a subject? There's not much of a story there. Uh, a professor of mine, I was an undergraduate at Stanford, and there was a guy there who had a massive uh, impact on me. He's still a good friend of mine. Um, his name is Mark Mancall. Um, he's one of these charismatic professors who always had a uh, following of students, and I was one of them, and uh, he told me to do it, so I did. Um, it was as simple as that to begin with. I think the, the harder question to answer is not why I first got interested. Or, well, there is kind of an interesting thing there in that I don't have a, I'm not Jewish, uh, I'm, uh, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not an Arab. I don't have, a, I don't have any kind of ethnic or religious background that, uh, uh, that gets one interested in the Middle East. When you get into Middle Eastern studies, right, most people in Middle Eastern studies have some kind of uh, strong personal religious identity aspect of their of their interest. I didn't have that. But it got under my skin and it has stayed under my skin. And I that is, uh, you know, something I had to spend uh, 20 years on a psychiatrist's couch to figure that out because I, I wouldn't advise Middle Eastern studies to anybody. Academia in general, for sure, but especially anything to do with the Middle East, um, even non-academic Middle Eastern studies. I take the ab the attitude that the rabbis have uh, toward people who want to convert to Judaism. You know, they, they tell them no three times, and if they come back a fourth time, they say maybe. You, the only reason you should do it is if God is telling you that you have to do Middle Eastern studies. And the reason I say that is it's really it, it's. I mean, look at the region. It's uh, it's bad news all the time, and and it's highly contentious. So. If you say anything serious about the region, there's going to be a large group of people who hate you. And uh, you, ha you have to, at least, at the very least, you have to be, you have to be comfortable with that. And I, I think it's not for most people then. Doing my research for this interview with you, uh, I spent a lot of time on some of these issues. And I came away a little bit sad about the state of things. Let's talk about that then. Mm. Let's talk about ISIS or the Islamic State. They're currently commanding large swaths of both Syria and northern Iraq. You recently tweeted referring to the, um, the beheading of journalist James Foley. I just watched the Foley video, sickening, this is war, President Obama. It's time to treat it as a war and to win it. So what's at stake and how does President Obama win this war? What's at stake is the regional order. If we don't crush um, ISIS, then I think we're going to have um, much larger problems down the line. And... When I say to President Obama, um, let's let's win this and let's mean it, uh, you know, the thing that has characterized his uh, his policy uh, is a desire to pull the United States back from the Middle East. And there's an assumption there. I mean, he wants to go down in history as the guy who um, who ended wars. Uh, and there is an assumption there that somewhere that uh, the United States has been the cause of the problems. Or that if the United States pulls itself back, the, the region will reach, without the United States, some kind of equilibrium that the United States can live with. And that there are, in these contests that are going on on the ground right now between ISIS and its enemies, uh, between Iran and its enemies, um, that, there are no, that there are no real vital U.S. interests at stake that we need to worry about. That you know, if one of them comes out on top or the other, we can, over the long haul, we can live with that. And I, I simply don't believe that. And I think... I haven't believed it, and I've been tweeting things and writing things like that for the last year. 
because I, I, I think that there is this civil war, multi-sided civil war going on in the region, uh, and we have a stake in, in, in the outcome. And time and time again, we're finding that if we do nothing, uh, it gets, the situation gets worse, and it can get worse still. Uh, and at some point, there's, we're going to get to that point where we say, you know what, we, actually, we have to take action. And at that point, taking action is going to be a lot harder than if we do it now. Speaking of doing nothing, about six months ago at an event here at Brookings, uh, you said that President Obama was, quote, following Sarah Palin's advice on Syria, unquote. I'm going to play a bit of that tape and ask you to comment on that. That's scary. For me, the, the chemical weapons crisis, if we can call that, in, in September, should have been a wake-up call for the president. And, and in other words, whether he's thought it through this way or not, I mean, the president is following Sarah Palin's advice on Syria. Right? Sarah Palin, the Sarah Palin policy advice is let Allah sort him out. Right now, the president is much more nuanced than the way he says it, and so on. He doesn't; those are not the words he uses, but the effect is exactly the same. We're letting all this sorted out. So, what does that mean, and, and also what's changed since then? Well, when Sarah Palin says "let all this sort him out," meaning let the Sunnis and Shiites kill each other, and uh, and so on, um, there's a there's a, a more than just a tinge of anti-Muslim sentiment in there, and. Uh, of course, President Obama has never expressed himself in that way at all, and I'm certain doesn't share that sentiment. But he still, nevertheless, he has a policy of hanging back and letting the conflict, um, letting the conflict go however it will, under the assumption that we're going to be okay uh, and our interests are going to be okay in the uh, in the end. And the way I see it, the Middle East system. Our allies and the, the, the forces that are most amenable to our, our interests, um, let's say, put it this way, the states that are most amenable to our interests um, cannot organize themselves. The differences between them are too great. Uh, the, the, the political and ethnic differences between them are too great. The uh, differences in military and political capabilities are, are, are too great. They're mismatched in all kinds of ways. And the United States really is the indispensable power. If we don't step forward... And um, and define an agenda for the powers that uh, whose interests are broadly aligned with ours. Then that agenda will not emerge. And, and what are those states? Uh, just the traditional ones: uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, uh, Israel, Turkey, United Arab Emirates. Uh, the the enemy of those states, as I see it, the the, the primary enemy uh, is Iran and its allies. So Iran, Syria, Hezbollah, Hamas, against the others, um, and then ISIS as well. Uh, ISIS is also the enemy of our allies and our enemy. So then shifting a little bit to Iran, you've compared Obama's Middle East strategy to Captain Ahab's <laughs> relentless pursuit of the great white whale. I love uh, your, your metaphors. So what is President Obama's obsession? Well, I believe, and I, I have to stress before I say um, exactly what I think, that this is a little bit of a controversial issue. Not everybody agrees with me. Uh, about this. But I believe that President Obama's unstated priority in the region, I think that his top priority is unstated, and I think it is an accommodation with Iran, uh, which means first and foremost, an accommodation on the nuclear file. But more broadly than that, he wants an accommodation with Iran throughout the whole region. And um, I think he has defined the ISIS threat as the number one um, priority of the United States. And the Iranian threat and the Iranian nuclear threat and the, and, the, and the threat of the spread of Iran's influence throughout the region, he sees as um, secondary or tertiary or maybe not even a threat. I, I see no indication by anything that he's done, as opposed to rhetoric, that he sees this as really a top priority. 
The nuclear file, he wants, he, he'd like to reach an accommodation so that it can, it can unlock the potential of Iran as a regional partner. That's how I think he sees it. And he, he basically said it in an interview with David Remnick uh, recently. And the, prob- the problem with that is, number one, uh, I don't think Iran sees itself at all as a potential partner of, of us. I think it wants to undermine the international order that we represent. It certainly wants to undermine those powers that I mentioned before that are our primary allies. Uh, and our allies see it that way. They see the regional, con- the regional politics as a contest uh, first and foremost, between them and Iran, secondly, between them and ISIS, uh, and then there are some tensions between those powers that are that, that are allied with us you know, between the, those that like the Muslim Brotherhood and those and those that don't. Uh, but so long as we hang back uh, on the Iran question, uh, our allies, all of them, Saudi Arabia, Israel, the UAE, they really feel like they're being hung out to dry. I remember a year ago when Rouhani became president of Iran, there was a lot of uh, thinking about, Oh, it could be a, a new day in, in Iran, a new day for U.S.-Iranian relations. But at the same time, we know, especially from our other colleagues like Suzanne Maloney, uh, is that this nuclear question is one of the most important things for the, the regime, which, as we know, also is really controlled by uh, the Supreme Leader, right. Khamenei. So what interest does Iran have that maybe uh, is in conflict with our interests and our allies' interests, and especially as it concerns, say, Syria and ISIS and, 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 and Israel? Iran is like, there's two, two different views of Iran out there. Uh, one view, which I would say is the dominant view in Washington. It, it's the view that I, that I believe that the president holds, although he doesn't say it. Um, and th- that view is that Iran is primarily a defensive power now, that it has this, um, uh, this leftover revolutionary ideology that it doesn't really believe in itself anymore. It's, uh, the regime is based on that, so it has to pay lip service to it. But it has really become a state like any other. It's got um, it's got its interests that it's interested in protecting, um, and uh, and it is fundamentally pragmatic in supporting those interests. And a lot of those interests overlap with us. So um, a lot of people are saying now that uh, ISIS is the enemy of Iran, and on the principle, the basis of the principle that my enemy's enemy is my friend, the United States and Iran can can work together to to combat ISIS. And in fact, if you look at what's going on in Iraq right now, we and the Iranians are supporting the, Mal- the no longer the Maliki government, but the government in Baghdad in uh, almost identical terms. I mean, it's quite a funny thing that you've got the, uh, the Iraqi, uh, the Iraqi forces there and in, in, in one office, uh, you've got uh, Americans advising them, and in another office, you've got uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guards advising them. And uh, not enough attention has been paid to this, I think. Uh, um, so that argument that Iran is defensive, we share interests, we can cooperate with them, is very prevalent. Uh, I don't believe it for a second. I believe that there's what I believe, and there's also what I believe is most prudent to assume. The fact of the matter is, on Iran, if I can quote my colleague here, Ken Pollack, uh, on all the big questions, Ken uh, always says, I have two answers, and they are, uh, I don't know, and it depends. Iran is one of the hardest countries. It's the most interesting country in the Middle East, I think, these days, and, and it's the hardest to understand. And we have to start from the assumption that, we, that on all the big questions, we really don't know. And then from there, I think it's only prudent to assume 
to assume the worst with regard to their to their intentions. And I say that on the, not on the basis of just because I'm, I, I, I tend to assume the worst, but I think there's a, a lot of evidence to suggest um, that they have uh, malignant intentions with respect to us and our, and our allies. So I think they're hell-bent on a, on a nuclear weapon, and I think they are willing to stretch out the timeline that it's going to take them to get one, uh, and they will reach temporary agreements with us that will especially if it will put our guard down, if it will lead to gaps opening up between us and our um, and our coalition partners, such as the Europeans uh, uh, and so on. But they'll never, ever, ever relinquish that program. And they will never, ever agree to what we have defined up until now as our absolute minimum that 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 we need in order to accommodate them. Now we keep shifting the the goalpost. I mean, we keep we keep making concession and concession, and then and saying, well, that was our minimum. But you know, when we think about it, we really don't need that. We can actually we can actually do with less. And they're looking at that. We've been doing that now for over a decade. A lot of red lines. A lot of red lines that have just disappeared. They've gone pink, and then they've just disappeared completely. They can read that very very clearly. So, uh, from my point of view, I ask, when have we ever? When have we ever taken a position that has made it possible for somebody in Tehran to say to the Supreme Leader, if we don't satisfy the Americans on this, it's going to be a lot worse for us? And I I don't think we ever have. On the idea of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, it seems like there's a similar situation now with Syria and the regime of Assad battling the uh, Islamic State in his country. Would you uh, talk about that? Well, for sure. People are making that argument, and they're saying that Assad is the enemy of ISIS, and uh, I- ISIS is our number one priority. Therefore, we should align with uh, with Assad. And I think that's very shallow thinking, the shallowest possible thinking, uh, because first of all, we've been watching Assad and how he deals with his counterterrorism threat over the last three years, and he drops barrel bombs on you know he drops bombs on bakeries while people are standing in civilians, women, children standing in line to buy bread. Um, he gasses civilians. He's continuing even after the nuclear the chemical weapons deal. He's continuing to gas people now with chlorine. Um, the UN just came out yesterday and said that in in, in April there were eight different uh, occasions on which they believe he um, he used chlorine gas against civilians. So As- uh, Assad is aligned with Iran. Uh, and he is an Alawite, which means he's he's not a Sunni. The vast majority of the population in Syria is uh, Sunni, and so uh, all of the people that he's slaughtering uh, on the ground are are Sunnis, or the vast majority of them are Sunnis. As a result, our Sunni allies, the the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Jordanians, the Turks, they they look at this and they see Assad as carrying out a vicious sectarian war against Sunnis, and in doing so, he's supported to the hilt by the Iranians. Um, who have the Iranians have forces on the ground, uh, the the Quds Force, the Revolutionary Guards, and they're also training Iraqi Shiite militiamen in Iran and then deploying them to um, to Syria. Uh, we've seen his the, how he tries to solve this ISIS problem, and all he's done is made it worse by relying on Assad. We 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 ensure that ISIS is only going to go stronger because we give Sunnis no choice but to go with the uh, to go with the strongest element among the Sunnis who's hostile to to Assad. So it's complicated and difficult to keep up with for for most people. I mean you're you're an expert and you follow this daily. How how do you explain the Middle East to sort of the the average American who's interested in public policy and foreign affairs? How do you convey the complexity in a way that that makes sense and and suggest to them why this is important? 
just the way we're doing right now, I think. I, I don't know. I, there is no, unfortunately, there is no shorthand. One of the problems um, that I have um, in explaining my perspective, I do believe that I actually have a perspective, is um, that a lot of the ideas out there um, that I think are particularly pernicious have a real kind of a common sense attraction to them because they're rooted in um, they're rooted in beliefs that are deep in our culture. So, like this notion that, well, you know, Assad's against ISIS and we're against ISIS, so therefore we can align with him. Um, it 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 doesn't work that way. I mean, the the if we go back to the Sarah Sarah Palin analogy, people started thinking of this as a simple two sided war, Sunnis versus Shiites, and she says, well, let's let Allah sort him out. Uh, I argued all last year that uh, it's not going to work out that way. What we're going to have if we just do nothing, is we're going to have a, a revitalized Iranian security system, which means a greatly strengthened Assad, and a powerful al-Qaeda safe haven in, in Syria. Uh, I think that was one of my better predictions uh, because that's, that's exactly what we got. So instead of these two sides weakening each other, they're sort of like two sides of the same coin. They both got stronger. And now people are coming forward and saying, well, then we'll align with Assad. That's effectively what we've done over the last three years. We haven't actually... We haven't actually um, cooperated with them militarily, but President Obama has made sure never to take any step that would really seriously strengthen the free Syrian army against Assad, and he has repeatedly let him off the hook. So the, the United States has given him, Assad, a free hand to deal with his problem in his country how we wanted, and the result was revitalized Iran and al-Qaeda safe haven, or now, well, we're calling it ISIS now, but radical Sunni jihadi safe haven. Right. They came out of Syri Syrian territory, right? Yeah. ISIS, as we know, the, the organization that we're most concerned with right now um, at, comes out of Iraq, but it, it migrated over to Syria and it got a lot stronger in Syria. So kind of to uh, go up to the 10,000-foot level, expand our lens a bit, you've written that, uh, quote, Obama's policies are in a shambles. Uh, when it comes to the Middle East. What do you mean by that? I mean that every major initiative that he's launched has failed and failed quite visibly and um, and spectacularly. And I would include, I think if we had a Obama supporter here, they would say, well, no, the, nu the Iranian nuclear negotiation is, is still ongoing and that may yet succeed. And perhaps the administration is even pinning hopes on that. But from my perspective, the Iranian nuclear negotiations have already failed. Even if they produce a deal that deal is now, we, we can see the broad outlines of what the deal are, the deal would be. Um, and that is so far from what we were saying was the minimum that we needed a, a, a year ago as to be ludicrous. Others have also said that Obama's foreign policy is collapsing in the second term. Uh, how does a president enact a strong, coherent foreign policy agenda with so much chaos in the world? And what could Obama do now in the last you know, couple of years of his administration he, to, to pull it back? He can do a lot. The biggest impediment is um, uh, sort of the psychological, intellectual impediment. Uh, he has to, you know, I, my understanding is that he has given instructions to his national security team now to, to give him wide-ranging options with regard to the ISIS problem. But he has put uh, but he's put some very serious limitations on that, um, one of them being no boots on the ground. So the U.S. cannot, um, uh, the U.S. can't intervene again. Now, I think that he's already, he's already severely limited um, what we can do if we're not going to put boots on the ground. 
Now, I'm not calling for um, another a Bush-style invasion of, of Iraq, but in order to crush ISIS, we have to put together a coalition of like-minded powers, uh, and my, my candidates would be the ones that I mentioned, our traditional allies, and we have to build up the forces within what I would call jihadistan, this area in contention from Baghdad now to Aleppo or Damascus. We have to build up um, counterweights to, to ISIS um, who have um, interests that are broadly aligned with our own, and that would be mainly the Free Syrian Army. Uh, in order to do that, there has to be a lot of there has to be a force on the ground that is um, closely allied with us, and I don't know how we do that without some uh, some injection of American military power on on the ground. It doesn't have to be a massive force, and it doesn't even have to be guys in the front line fighting in Syria and Iraq. But we have to be on the ground training people in Turkey, in Jordan. Uh, uh, in Iraq, and we have to be closely involved in all of the operations that they're carrying out. We have to put together the alliance, and we have to be the strategic brain behind it, making sure that all the parts are moving where they should. And do you think President Obama needs to get some kind of an authorization from Congress to pursue that kind of policy? I do. I do. But first of all, he has to the biggest problem is in his own head. I mean, the, the only debate in this administration that matters is the debate in the president's head. We know from all of the accounts that uh, two summers ago, uh, his national security team unana unanimously told him to arm the Free Syrian Army. Um, so that's you know, Hillary Clinton, uh, Leon Panetta, uh, David Petraeus, uh, and the, the chairman at the time uh, all told him to do this. And he, and he said no. Uh, and he... Recently, it was, re was reported that uh, in a meeting with uh, a bipartisan meeting of congressional leaders, uh, Senator Corker um, suggested to him that he should rethink his Syria policy. And the president uh, said that um, criticism of his Syria policy is horse So he clearly, now maybe, that, maybe the fact that he expressed himself in that way showed a little bit of, uh, of uh, frustration. And maybe he's having, you know, he's fighting with himself now. But I think he's pretty confident that he's done the right thing there. Till he decides that he actually has to do something about Syria as well as Iraq, then we're going to have this problem is just going to fester. And how do you react to people who blame the Bush administration for, for some of these foreign policy problems that Obama encounters? I, look, uh, there's no doubt that the president was handed um, a difficult set of problems. No, there's no doubt about that at all, and um, I think um, any fair-minded person would look back at this and say that that Bush made a lot of mistakes in Iraq, but that doesn't help us figure out what to do going forward, and it doesn't it doesn't mean that everything that President Obama has done uh, over the last over the last five years was um, was wise or built on some of the better things that that Bush did. Is there any? good foreign policy news from the Obama administration, maybe not in the Middle East, but in some other part of the world? You know, there, there probably is, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm so focused on the, uh, uh, on the Middle East, and I don't see any really good news coming out. You know, look, uh, the, the, the fact that the president did reverse himself to a certain extent on, on Iraq, uh, I think that that's, that that's good news. I mean, that's movement in the, in the right direction. But the policy we have in place right now will not achieve the stated goal of defeating ISIS. Uh, actually, the president himself has been pretty careful not to talk in terms of defeating ISIS, but his secretary of defense and the secretary of state have. Um, and um, I agree with the secretary of state and the secretary of defense. That's what needs to happen. And if the president wants to do that, then he's going to have to go further than he has. But the, 
the trajectory at the moment is is positive. How does that happen in in that level of uh, U.S. administrations that the two of the senior foreign policy people, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, express a point of view that's very uh, that's very plain? ISIS is one of our is our top enemy. I think Hegel said something like that. And yet the president doesn't say that. What is going on there? To me, um, this is a really striking aspect of this administration. When I worked in the in, a, in the NSC, um, one of my jobs was to make sure that this didn't happen. And we regarded it when when it did, uh, you know. It's, it's inevitable. There's in uh, um, a bureaucracy as big as ours, a government as big as ours, that sometimes the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. But it is the job of the NSC to make sure that everybody is moving in the same direction and um, and importantly speaking um, off the same script. And um, this one frequently doesn't, and um, it gets away with it. More and more people are starting to notice and ask questions about it. I don't know exactly what's going on. Uh, if it's, you know, typically it, ha- it can happen in a number of different ways. It can be just people are in a meeting with the president and um, and he says something that's slightly ambiguous and they hear one thing, whereas he, he, he was a bit more nuanced. Or it can be people are actually fighting the policy in the public arena. They figure that if they put out these talking points, then they'll be able to push the, the policy in, uh, in, in the direction that they want it to go. Um, I, I, I'm not in a position to know exactly whether this was just accidental or whether there's uh, an actual fight going on. Well, these are really difficult, challenging, even tiring kinds of issues and questions. Uh, let's wind down a little bit, talk about how do you how do you process all this information and how do you relax and kind of get away from it all? Uh, I would say I'm not very good at that. <laughs> I'm, I, uh, my my wife jokes that if she wants to get my attention, she has to uh, she has to say that oh they're fighting in the Middle East, and then I <laughs> then I wake up. So um, I am pretty much obsessed with the Middle East and thinking about it twenty four seven. the The demands of uh, being a husband and being a father are such that uh, that I can't do that all the time, and that's probably pretty healthy. Um, but I don't have a good um, uh, I don't have a good hobby or uh, that takes me away from this. The Middle East is, is my work and my hobby. Well, uh, your, your sense of humor, if you if I may, comes through on your Twitter feed, which I follow. Uh, I encourage listeners to follow you at Doranimated, like the word animated, preceded by D O R Doranimated. For example, you recently tweeted about uh, why were the 1970s better than all the other decades? Uh, you, <laughs> you you linked to a uh, a video of Ray Charles and Johnny Cash singing Ring of Fire together. And also, I, I think you must be somewhat of a fan of President Eisenhower. I think you're working on a book about him. I am, yeah. I'm just finishing up a book on uh, on Eisenhower. Um, Eisenhower in the Middle East. When I got out of the Bush administration, I uh, I wanted to get away from some of the the fights about the, uh, about the current policy um, and do something that was a little deeper, a little bit more cerebral. And I thought um, that the problems that the Eisenhower administration had in the Middle East and the debates that it had um, were parallel to the ones we're having now and we could kind of illuminate the current situation without being as, uh, without being as controversial. Um, and uh, so I, an oppor- I gave me an opportunity to have a little um, deeper dive into some of the issues. Uh, and so I, I wrote this book on um, uh, Eisenhower's approach to the Middle East and how it changed. He had a, something like an Arab Spring. He had a, a, a huge wave of revolution that swept the region uh, um, that he had to contend with. Well, I think with that, uh, we'll look forward to reading your book. And uh, I, uh, I thank you very much for your time today, Mike. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
To learn more about Mike Duran and his research, visit brookings.edu slash Middle East. If you have any questions for Mike or any guests of the podcast, send an email to bcp at brookings.edu and subscribe to us on iTunes. Next up, at a Brookings event held in August, Brookings President Strobe Talbot, Senior Fellow Cliff Gaddy, and Political Magazine Editor Susan Glasser engaged in a fascinating conversation about Russia's foreign policy and what it means for the international order. Talbot, who served in the State Department from 1993 to 2001 and was Special Advisor to the Secretary of State for the new independent states of the Soviet Union, emphasized the inviolability of borders. Uh, I would think that it should be uh, the uh, determined goal of the United States government and other like-minded governments around the world that victory for Vladimir Putin in Ukraine is just not an option. One reason I stress that is uh, I would hope uh, something that could be a matter of consensus among us, uh, and that is that if he does get away with violating what has been a ironclad principle of international law for quite some time, uh, and in fact was a very important guiding principle of the uh, post-Soviet Russian government when it was under Boris Yeltsin, namely that borders should not be violated or changed by force. If he were to get away with that, it would establish a precedent uh, that could wreak havoc in many parts of the world. Thomas Wright, a senior fellow who moderated the event, asked Gaddy to comment on what Putin thinks about the West and the international order. Gaddy pushed back on the notion that Putin's goal is to overthrow the current world order. And I think one thing that he doesn't want and never has shown an inclination to have is leadership in global affairs for himself or for Russia. Uh, it might seem contradictory to what conventional wisdom is, but Putin is a Russia firster to an extent that I think we just can't overemphasize. It is all about Russia. And everything else is tactics, but that is the ultimate goal. I think basically Putin is perfectly happy that the United States essentially be the leader of the international order. Let the United States make the rules. Um, You can definitely enforce the rules, I think his attitude towards the U.S. is, you're very welcome to be the policeman. We certainly are not going to be the the world's policeman. But there are only two criteria or two two qualifications to that. We have no problem with all of that as long as as there is no blowback to Russia. And we will say and have the right to essentially veto actions that we regard as threatening to us. And second, I think this is important, he's all for a rules-based order. Everybody should obey the rules, except when he decides it's in his interest not to obey the rules. And he says, that's what you do. That's what the U.S. does. We just want that same right. Gaddy is the co-author with Fiona Hill of an important book on Russia's president titled Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin, which has a new edition coming out in November. As the conversation continued, Susan Glasser shared her experience of meeting Putin for the first time when she was covering his first term in office in 2001. Uh, You know, I was just going back before this panel, and I I went and looked at the very first time Putin met with uh, um, American reporters. 
uh, was actually a year and a half into his uh, tenure in the Kremlin, and it was right after his famous meeting with George W. Bush, at which Bush looked into his soul. And I, I was there. It was it was quite a performance. It went on for hours, you know, and lasted, you know, almost until the middle of the night, which is a vintage kind of Kremlin thing to do. Um, but what was striking was that even then, beyond the sort of positive surround sound, this was a very combative person uh, who felt very misunderstood already by the West. He was absolutely, uh, you know, I had the great honor of asking him the question about Chechnya, uh, which didn't come until about two-thirds of the way into the thing. And it was like a totally different person, uh, you know, was speaking. And Talbot, who was way- told of his first meeting with Vladimir Putin in 1999, added... Well, just one thing that uh, one of many terrific things that uh, Susan just said, I wanted to pick up on one, which is the relationship between Vladimir Putin and the truth. He has no compunction whatsoever. Indeed, I think he has a certain uh, professional uh, um, enthusiasm for turning truth on its head. I mean, he is uh, a almost to a fault a master of lying. But I do not think uh, he is being disingenuous when he uh, perpetrates paranoid conspiracy theories about what's happening in the rest of the world. Putin, Talbot explained, perpetuates untruths and he believes in untruths. That's it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. I'd like to thank Zach Kulzer, my outstanding producer, and Jessica Pavone, who designed our wonderful logo, and also our web support team, Rebecca Weiser and Eric Abalahan. If you have a question you'd like a scholar to answer on an upcoming program or any other feedback, please send an email to bcp at brookings.edu. And as always, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. <laughs>